Well, I invite you, if you'd like, to turn to John chapter 6. John chapter 6, we're going to read verses 41 down to 51 and really just look at verses 41 to 47 and pick up in a couple weeks. Next week we'll look at a, a resurrection passage, but in a couple weeks we'll pick up with verse 48 and keep walking through the chapter. Before we read and look at it, let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, in Your Word, You've given us treasures of the greatest kind. This world is filled with gold mines and silver mines and lots of money, and yet when we come to Your Word, we find treasures which far exceed those treasures, treasures of an eternal kind, of a spiritual kind. And we ask that You'd work in our hearts in a powerful way by Your Holy Spirit, that we'd leave here changed, so as we're confronted with who Christ is, who He says He is, and what He says about how to be saved, we ask that You'll grant clarity in our own hearts, that You'll draw us even closer to Yourself, and that if there are any in this hearing who don't know You, that they would come to know You. This is our prayer for Jesus' sake. Amen. All right, John chapter 6, of verse 41. So the Jews grumbled about Him because He said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Thus far, the reading of God's word may bless to our hearts and lives this morning. So. Congregation of Hope Church, brothers and sisters, and everyone listening with us this morning. In uh, the previous paragraph, Jesus had mentioned that whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And if you were in the crowd and you had heard Jesus teach that after you had watched him feed 20,000 people, likely people were probably abuzz about how he got over to the other side walking on water. I don't know what the disciples said, if they said anything, but you had seen Jesus do some pretty magnificent things. You had beheld Him healing and teaching. You had decided that He needed to be king, that He's the prophet. You're ready to enthrone Him so He can do battle against the Romans. You've seen Jesus do some marvelous things. And then He says, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So you know there's an open door. And once you come to Him, there, uh, He accepts everybody. You might have expected every single human being in the crowd to say, I'm in. Sign me up. Uh, just come pouring into Jesus, falling at His feet and saying, Lord, I'm, forgive me for my sin. I'm a sinful person. I, I need your salvation. Give me eternal life. I want to eat of you. I want to drink of you. I want this life that you're talking about. But in one of maybe the most sobering, saddening, hard turns of maybe any chapter in all the Gospels or the whole Bible, what takes place is as Jesus walks through these things and tells them about this great redemption provided free of charge in Him, by the time we get to the end, there's basically nobody left. 
It's down to the disciples. You go from a crowd of about 20,000 people, give or take, to another massive crowd filled with his disciples. More on that in the coming weeks. Down to a crowd of about 12 people. And Jesus even asked them, are you going to go away as well? And it's uh, even worse that we're told in verse 41 that after Jesus said something like, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out, the Jews grumbled about him. It's a display of the human heart by nature. It's a display of how much we don't want God to rule over us. Adam and Eve decided they didn't want God to rule over them in the Garden of Eden. We've been infected with this exact same thing. And so here, instead of the Jews saying, what a Savior we believe, they start complaining and they grumble about the Lord and He calls Him to the mat on it. One of the things as well that we're going to walk into as we notice this passage is that if you would have talked to a Jew in Jesus' day, especially a fastidious one, particularly a Pharisee, a scribe, a Sadducee, one of the rabbis or teachers, they would have thought they were close to God. They would have thought that they were very near God and that they knew God well because they had the word memorized. Remember one of the rabbis taught, the more the word you have, the more eternal life you have. They knew the words, so they would have expected that they would have had eternal life. And they would have assumed that they were saved and close to God because they were obeying the commandments. And that's how you come to be saved as you obey the commandments. But Jesus teaches something radically different. And it's really what you might, it's just an explosion right in front of their faces. And, and it's something even harder for them to chew on, let alone the, the flesh and blood that he's about ready to get into. And I want to just see four things in this passage. One of them will be what I just mentioned um, who can come to him? But uh, Jesus confronts their grumbling. Second, he destroys their pride. Third, he distinguishes between self-taught and God-taught. And then finally, he offers eternal life. So let's begin with Jesus confronts their grumbling in verses 41 to 43. The Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. So we briefly looked at this last week, noting that you know, Jesus is not outwardly attractive. They couldn't get over the fact that they knew his mom. They actually didn't know his dad. Uh, Jesus actually said, your father is the, the devil. My dad is the father in heaven. You're saying we know your father and mother, Joseph and Mary. Yeah, you know Mary, that's fine. But Joseph is not uh, Jesus' biological dad. He's come from heaven. His father is in heaven. So Again, they're, they're even missing this a little bit, although it could be just that their point stands. We know the house he came from, and they can't get over how ordinary God looks in front of them. He's claiming to be God, but he grew up in Nazareth. We know his parents. We may have helped change some of his diapers or whatever the equivalent was in that day. I mean, these are ordinary people living around uh, God in the flesh, and they're saying no way is this possible. And so they were grumbling about him. He says he comes from heaven. <laughs> but if he came from heaven... He'd be in like white robes, and we've seen God reveal himself in the Old Testament. And when, when God shows up, people are scared, and his countenance is just is powerful. Moses couldn't even look at him. How can Jesus say that he's from heaven? So they can't wrap their minds around it. But instead of falling down before Jesus' feet and believing anyway on account of the miracles and everything else they saw, they decided to grumble. And the word for grumbling is to speak discontentedly under one's breath or to confer secretly together in order to complain. So the grumbling being done here is not like an open complaint lodged against somebody to their face. 
It's like Jesus says, I'm the bread come down from heaven. And they turn among themselves. They're like, this guy said he's from heaven. Can you believe this? And, and just to themselves, assuming Jesus wasn't listening to them at all. Now, they should have known <laughs> that Jesus can read minds, that he knows people inside now because he's already displayed that. He knows what's in people. But they obviously haven't figured that out yet. And so Jesus says, do, do not grumble among yourselves. In other words, I can overhear everything you're saying. Not because I can hear what you're saying, but because I know what's in your heart. I know what you're saying, even though I can't hear it. Don't grumble among yourselves. I already know what you're saying. You may as well say it out loud, but it would be best of all if you didn't do it at all. And one, what's at the root of going, what's going on here? Why are they grumbling? One pastor put it this way, at the root of unbelief is not a lack of evidence, but an attitude that wants to tell God how to run the universe, at least my corner of the universe. So what's going on with this grumbling? They're saying, look, if God was gonna save us, it wouldn't be through this guy. If God was gonna come down and show up and actually deliver us, he wouldn't look like that. No way he came down from heaven. So they don't like what God's doing. They refuse to believe this is how God's working. And that's at the heart of grumbling, this complaining, God, you ain't doing it right. Why? Because you're not doing it my way. And for the Jews at this moment, not doing it their way meant that the savior standing in front of them wasn't gaining political power, wasn't overtaking the Romans, wasn't doing things their way, but it can also work itself out in our lives in many ways where we say, God, because you're not doing this my way, I don't wanna trust you, I don't wanna believe in you, I don't wanna have anything to do with you. The grumbling actually is reminiscent of the Israelites in the wilderness. You remember Exodus 16 two, where we're one chapter away from the song that they sung on the shores of the Red Sea now, okay? <laughs> Crossed over the Red Sea, Pharaoh's army drowned. They're all singing in Exodus chapter 15. Exodus 16, verse two, the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. One chapter later, Exodus 17, verse three, the people thirsted for water and the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So what is characteristic of people who are lost is this, they don't like the way God does stuff. They think that God is trying to impose something on them which will destroy them, like Adam and Eve thought. God doesn't have your best in mind, does he? God doesn't really want your good. The best thing is actually if you disobey God. That's what is in every human being by nature. God doesn't have my best interest in mind. And so they grumble and they complain. But Christians aren't exempt for this either. And I wanna just briefly mention this. In Philippians 2.14, Paul says, do all things without grumbling or questioning that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. So Paul's saying, why is he telling Christians not to grumble? Because we do. <laughs> do everything without grumbling. Why is Paul saying this? Because we're tempted to do just that and we can often fall into that. And he says he wants us to not go through life grumbling so that we can be a light in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. What's that mean? The world is filled with complaining, beloved. People saying, God, you don't get this right or whoever is in charge, you don't got this right. And Christians stand out in the midst of a life that isn't going how they want either. And, but instead of complaining, they say, the Lord knows best, I'm not the infinitely wise one. And that's a great witness. In 1 Corinthians 10 verse nine, we must not grumble as some of them did, the Israelites, and were destroyed by the destroyer. These things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he 
stands, take heed lest he fall. It's possible that our attitude will be, those Israelites and those Jews, what a bunch of complainers. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, take heed lest you or I think that we stand, lest we fall. Because if we think that everybody else is a complainer, we actually might end up being the biggest complainers if our focus is on other people. So let me ask you, I am asking myself the same thing. Do we have a real problem with the way God saves, with God's providence in our lives, with what he's brought into our life? If so, we have a problem with God and it's never good to have a problem with God because he never makes mistakes. So it's telling us something about our own heart. Uh, I think I've mentioned this before. Esther Vandiver, she was a teacher. I think her husband helped start Grace Classical Academy in Springfield, Missouri on Cherry Street. She's passed away. I think in 2014 or 15, she died. I had just moved down, or Sean and I had moved down to uh, uh, Springfield. We we're starting a church plant there through a, a series of events. And the first thing we did as a form of outreach to the community was we did a, a marriage conference, and then we did an arts conference. And at the arts conference, um, Janie Cheney was uh, supposed to speak, and she did very well. And I introduced her, said, uh, you know, I, I pastor the church that Janie attends, uh, attends and Janie writes for World, etc. And immediately after Janie's presentation, I'd never met this lady, Esther, at all. She came up to me, and I'll never forget it. She said, you know, you Calvinists should never complain. <laughs> no hi, no introduction, no, my name is Esther. I didn't know this lady from Adam. You Calvinists should never complain because you believe that God's in charge of everything. And so if you ever complain, you're saying that God got it wrong and that he made a mistake. <laughs> to which I responded, you're right. My name is Zach. <laughs> nice, to, <laughs> nice to meet you. But she's right. If we really understand that this is how God saves in Christ, and we really understand that everything which takes place in the world is according to God's way, not our way, and he doesn't need our permission to govern the world. Thankfully, he doesn't ask us how to govern the world because we make a total hash of it. If we really believe that, then our murmuring and our complaining will not be under our breath about, God, you've got this wrong. But if we have any complaint against God, it will be to his face, if nothing else. And we'll work this out like the psalmist does. Lord, how long? Lord, this is difficult. What do I do? That's far different than the attitude which says, I know more than God does. I'm smarter than God. I'm wiser than God. He should take lessons from me. And that was their attitude. And so Jesus goes after it. The second thing that Jesus does with the people in the crowd is he destroys their pride. And he does this in a couple of ways. The first way is by teaching them that no one can save him or himself or herself. Verse 44, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. Catch that language. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. In 1 Corinthians 2, verse 14, the Apostle Paul says something very similar. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. It's not possible for any human being to, on their own, turn on their own lights and realize the way to be saved is through Jesus Christ and then come to uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, which means for any who don't believe, or for those Christians, or for those non-Christians that we might be reaching out to or that we encounter, none of them are able to save themselves. It's one of the hardest doctrines for people to wrap their minds around. The Jews couldn't wrap their minds around it. This is why this is a hard saying, and many of them walk away. What do you mean no one can come to me? What do you mean no one can come to Jesus? I can do whatever I want. 
I'm in charge of my own spiritual life. Especially in America, we, we emphasize our independence. We celebrate Independence Day. We, we're an independent people. There's almost, if you tell an American you can't do this, what, is, what, is, what do most Americans do, at least historically? Oh yeah, watch and see. <laughs> I'll prove you wrong, right? I mean, that's just embedded in our ethos as a country. When it comes to salvation, how God works out redemption though, Jesus says, actually, you can't come to me. You, you can't come to me unless my father draws you. So for any Christian to say, look, I chose God, it's like, yeah, you chose God, but don't forget the backstory. You chose God, but you chose God only because he first chose you. I love God. I believe in him. Absolutely. You love God and you believe in him, but that's only because he made you alive and gave you this gift of faith so that you can believe in him. So it's humbling for us as believers to think no one can come to Jesus unless the father draws him. I believe in Jesus. Wow. That wasn't my doing. The second thing he says to destroy their pride is God saves by drawing. Again, verse 44. I'm just looking at the first half and the second half. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Now, the word draw is literally to move an object from one area to another in a pulling motion with implication that the object being moved is incapable of propelling itself or in the case of persons is unwilling to do so voluntarily. So the language of draw can be taken, yet God is kind of wooing people in and making salvation really attractive, and they just come on their own. But that's, that's a little bit inaccurate based upon this. In, in John 18, verse 10, the same word draw is used. Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it. So Simon didn't put his hand up here and make his hand look really good to the sword, and the sword just jumped out of the scabbard into his hand. Well, he had to pull the sword out. Uh, John 21, verse 6, they cast the net, and now uh, they were they were not able to haul or draw or drag it in because of the quantity of fish. So again, the fish were not wooed into the boat. You throw the net out there, the fish hop in the net, and then you have to drag the fish into the boat. John 21, 11, Simon Peter went aboard and hauled or dragged or drew the net ashore. And then Acts 16, verse 19, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged or hauled or drew them into the marketplace before the rulers. So the definition of this word to draw, to draw or drag a person forcibly, almost against their own will. So no one can come to Jesus unless the Father draws them or drags them into a relationship with his Son. The Lord in the Old Testament mentions this, particularly in Hosea 11 verses 1 through 4. In his relationship with Israel, this is what it looked like. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love. And I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws. And I bent down to them and fed them. The image here, I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness. It's instead of standing behind the animals and slapping them as they're moving, trying to whip them to get them to go, the image is actually taking their yoke and as it were, or the bit in the bridle and picking it up and helping them and moving them. It's drawing them. So you're forcing them to go in a direction, but it's with kindness and it's with love. And that's how the father draws people by showing them something incredible 
and then by forcing them into it. Or to use the language of John 12, 32, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself, the same word. How do people come to Christ? The Father draws them, he drags them to see who the Lord Jesus Christ really is. The Jews didn't understand this at all, the ones that Jesus was talking to. If you ask them, how can you have a relationship with the Father? How can you have a relationship with God in general? They would have said, you're born a Jew, you're circumcised on the eighth day, you're taught the commandments, and you strive to obey all of them regularly. That's how you have a relationship with the Father. Jesus knows this, and he says, actually, none of you can come to me unless the Father draws him. Took it entirely out of their hands. J.C. Ryle put it this way, commenting on this verse, our Lord desired to magnify their danger and guilt and to make them see that faith in him was not so easy an affair as they supposed. It was not knowledge of his origin alone, but the drawing grace of God the Father which they needed. Let them awake to see that and cry for grace before it was too late. Let me just mention this. In our context, Pella, Iowa, filled with churches historically, a lot of people go to church. Some Christians think about this way. Some non-Christians, many non-Christians think about Christianity this way. I can become a Christian. It's very easy. I just say, I believe in Jesus. I get baptized. I learn some basic teachings. I go to church on Sunday and I live a nice life and I'd be nice to those people around me. What Jesus says is no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. So there's a way where we can put on external things and make us think, make ourselves think that we're actually in a relationship with Christ. But the real issue is that the Father has to draw us in in order for anybody to be saved. And when God draws us in, when he pulls us in, then all of a sudden we respond, absolutely. We'll see a huge response. I believe in Jesus, all these things, but no one can really believe in the Father unless they're drawn in. It's easy for those of us who've been Christians for a long time, and maybe even easier for those of us who've lived our lives in sort of a Christian bubble, in a what we might call a Christian community, or, or the majority of our friendships or all of our friendships exclusively are with other believers. It's easy to forget how our salvation story started and how how it is that we came to know the Lord Jesus Christ. And when these truths are forgotten, we can have the same attitude that a lot of the Jews did, that I can't believe these people are really wicked because their life is way worse than mine. And the real way to be saved is to live a really good life. That's why God continues to love me because maybe I was more sinful, but I've come a long way now and I am way better than my neighbor or this coworker who does these things or or this person I read about in the newspaper, whatever the case may be. It's easy to forget that, beloved, even as believers who, who may have been believers for a long time and who, again, as when, when you become a Christian, a lot of your friends change. We shouldn't neglect our non-Christian friends in order to reach out with them, but we gain a lot of Christian friends. But if that's all the people we hang out with throughout the week, again, that's not saying that's bad, but here's what can often happen. We start becoming proud in how we talk about those who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, and we lose focus, and our attitude can be just like the Jews. If that's our attitude, then uh, we've actually been overtaken by pride. And pride, you could argue, is the root of all sin, or maybe the worst sin of all, 
but it's blinding. That's one of the worst things about pride is it's blinding. These people standing in front of Jesus, they're so proud they can't see what they're doing. And as Christians, we can walk down that same path if we're not careful as well. Not that we'll fall into unbelief, but that our attitude can change and be something of, of the same as theirs. So remember where we came from. Remember that, I hope it strike. I, I, it doesn't strike me near as often as it ought to, but you ever have it in the morning where you wake up or sometime in the middle of the day, it just hits you as you're talking with somebody who doesn't know the Lord. Why, why do I know Jesus? Why is it that I have a relationship with the Lord? Why do I have eternal life? Where, where did this come from? How, how is it that in a world filled with all of these horrible things, filled with people who don't know the Lord, why am I any different? What, is, what has taken place? Where did this come from? And Jesus says, it's because the Father drew you. Beloved, there's no more humbling, joy-filled teaching than that, what Jesus is teaching us in verse 44. Can you believe that the Father drew you in? Can you believe the Father reached you and reached me, people like us? Can you believe it? Fathom it. There are a lot of people who never get reached. The Father doesn't draw. But you and I are one of the people he's drawn, surely by his grace. A humbling truth, but one that just gives us the greatest cost to go out in the world and sing every day. Regardless how the day went, I got fired. My car broke down. I lost my house. But the Father drew me, and I've got eternal life. Uh, tremendous teaching, what Jesus is telling us here. The, second, uh, the third thing I want us to see is that Jesus distinguishes between self-taught and God-taught. Verse 45, it is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Now, Jesus is quoting directly from Isaiah 54, 13. Here's what that passage reads. All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. So when Jesus is telling them, what he's telling them is that though they knew their Bible inside and out, they actually needed to be taught by God. And there's a big difference. The Jews were self-taught. They knew the word inside and out. Again, as I mentioned before, and many people have taught in commentaries, et cetera, they had the words in the books of the Bible numbered. They could tell you the middle word in each book. They could tell you the middle word in the whole Testament. They had the, the word of God dissected, as it were, like an animal. They didn't know it was a crab. They couldn't tell it was a crab, but they could tell you every part on the crab, even though they'd missed Jesus Christ. And yet God's, Jesus is saying, everyone who's taught by God learns from God and comes to me. So everyone who believes in me is taught by God. In other words, the fact that you haven't come to me means that God hasn't taught you. You've taught yourselves a lot. You know the word inside and out, but you, but you don't know the word. You know all about the word, but you don't actually know who the word's talking about. So Jesus is distinguishing between being self-taught and being God-taught. Look, it's possible we know this, to know the Bible really well, to know all about the Bible really well, but to not know about the God who wrote the Bible and revealed himself in the Bible. There's a massive difference. Jesus is saying, look, everyone who comes to me has been taught by God and has learned things from God. Those are the people that come to me. You're not coming to me, therefore, God has never taught you. God has never done what he said would take place in Isaiah 54, 13. From their own scriptures, he says that the Lord's children will be taught by him. They should have known this and picked up on this. So again, a big difference between being self-taught and being God-taught. 
Everyone who's been taught by God comes to Jesus Christ. All who reject Jesus, no matter how much they may know the Bible, have not yet been taught by God. It's a hard thing to, to conceive. It's almost a truth of which you need to feel or experience in order to figure out. But let me ask you this. I'm asking myself this exact same question. As we come to the Word, do we approach the Word of God in order to learn about God and have Him teach us things that we need to know? Or do we approach the Word of God saying, in order to sound smart, in order to fulfill what I think is a duty so that I can say, yep, I did my devotional for the day, do we approach the Word of God with those reasons saying, yep, that's why I'm going to word the, uh, read the Word of God? Because the Jews, especially the Jewish leaders, read the Word in order to sound smart, to be well-respected, to receive the praise of men. They didn't read it to say, Lord, what is it about you that I need to know? How is it that I can relate to you? And who's this Messiah, this Savior, your son, that has spent so much time talking about? Because I want to get to know you through him. How do you read the Bible? How do you approach it? And then finally, Jesus offers eternal life. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. So Jesus does not tell them to believe unto eternal life, but simply explain to them how eternal life might be obtained. He, he didn't say, you need to believe so you can have eternal life. He's just teaching uh, whoever believes has eternal life. And it's fascinating that in arguably in the Gospels, a chapter that so emphasizes or emphasizes the most God's sovereignty and salvation. Jesus is still talking about the need to believe in order to have eternal life. And D.A. Carson said it this way. I think it's helpful. Notwithstanding the strong note of predestinarian thought in the preceding verses, this is an implicit invitation to believe. In this context, however, it strips the would-be disciple of all pretensions, of all self-congratulation, of all agendas, except those laid down by the Lord Jesus himself. Those who believe in a context like this cannot approach Jesus as if they are doing him a favor or worse, as if they know what is best for him. They must believe, but they do so on his terms and by his grace. So all who believe are not able to say that they're better than anyone else because they believed. Rather, they're humbled to know that the only reason they believe is because the Father drew them to Christ. On believing, which John is emphasizing throughout his whole gospel, Believing is not something anyone can do for anyone else. Each person needs to believe in Jesus in order to obtain eternal life. Our parents can't believe for us. You know, some of us kids are being raised in a Christian home, meaning our mom and dad are believers. They tell us about the Lord Jesus Christ, and that is a privilege. It, it's hard to put a value on that privilege because so many kids are raised in this world and go through their whole childhood never having heard about Jesus. But for those of us who are being raised in, in, in homes and uh, are hearing about the Lord Jesus Christ, it's not enough for your parents to believe or for your friends to believe or even to go to church, etc. You have to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not enough for any of us that our friends believe or that we go to a church filled with other believers that won't, that won't give us eternal life. Jesus says, whoever believes has eternal life. We have to believe. God doesn't even believe for us. God gives us the gift of faith to be sure, but belief is something we have to do. It's something that is involved in our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to believe in him. And if we do, we have eternal life. And this eternal life, the way it's put, is that it's a present possession. If we believe in Jesus, whoever believes has eternal life. He doesn't say will have one day, but says has eternal life already. So 
Think of like Christmas time. You see, maybe you have a Christmas tree, maybe you don't, maybe you stuff presents in a closet if you do presents. But think of Christmas time, there's a Christmas tree in your living room or in somewhere else in your house and there's a present underneath it with your name on it. Now that's your present, it, it's yours. Now it hasn't been given to you yet. In, in some ways it's been given, the person who is gonna give it to you has bought it for you, they've thought of you. It's all yours, it's going to be yours someday. And it's presently, if you said, what belongs to you? Well, everything in my room belongs to me and that present does as well. It's yours, but you haven't opened it yet. It's not come in fullness. So that's what Jesus is saying about eternal life. Whoever believes has eternal life. Our names have been written in heaven. He's gone to prepare a place for us in the Father's mansion. There's a room with our name on it, as it were, whatever that looks like. It'd be great when we find out and get there. But we already have this eternal life, yet it's not come, it's not here yet. It's not a reality in our lives yet. And let me conclude just by uh, saying this. I had to cut this short or we would have been here till like two in the afternoon. It seems a silly thing that in the presence of Jesus Christ, God standing in front of people, Jesus has to cut men down to their appropriate size. Why are our hearts, or isn't it amazing that our hearts are that far off that, that God can stand in front of us as we are by nature and tell us how to be saved and tell us that whoever comes to me he will never cast out and tell us the simple truth that he came down from heaven and yet men grumble in their pride and complain about it. Isn't, isn't that a testament to how far broken we are? All the, all the horribleness that took place in the Garden of Eden, this is the result that men and women can look at the God who made them in the flesh and have all their pride intact yet and not give him glory. Clearly there's something very wrong with all of us by nature. And for those of us who might be struggling as believers thinking, you know, I'm not a lost person, I know that, but you know, as a believer, I, I do like to complain about how God does things in my life and I've got a lot to grumble about uh, and, and, and I've got a lot of pride in this. One of the greatest helps is to just look at the Lord Jesus Christ uh, standing before these people. He, he had left behind all the praise of the 24 elders and the four living creatures falling down, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. He had left all that behind for about 33 years. And the angels doing his bidding, like he'd just tell them, here's what you need to go do, and they go do it. I mean, just servants at his disposal. He, as it were, he didn't leave his throne, meaning he didn't cease to be God, but he put on flesh and took on the humiliation of what it is to be a human being, God in, God in the flesh. And he walked down here with leaving all that power behind and he lived among us in all lowliness. I mean, the savior of the world in a manger. And he confronted people face to face. He'd talk to them, he'd tell them who he is, just the truth, and they wouldn't believe him. And he'd confront the religious leaders and call them hypocrites, but yet they wouldn't repent and turn around. And he sat there in all humility when he could have called all the armies, mustered them together of heaven and just come down and destroyed people. And yet he sat here under the will of God coming to do God's will and, and he did it joyfully. He went all the way to the trials. He was mistried, he was perfectly innocent and yet somehow he's the one carrying a crossbeam after having been flogged 
up a hill to go be crucified. Did nothing wrong. He's got a placard around his neck with charges, false. What's the problem with him? Well, he's just the king of the Jews. That's what he claims. That's his problem. He goes all the way up to be crucified. And when did he complain and grumble? When did he once say, God, you got this wrong. Father, this is not right. Father, no. Now he wrestled with it, but not one single complaint because he loves us, because he cares for us, because he loves his father and because he wants us to be saved. For some people, even this is not enough to humble them. To see Jesus do all that, to see their creator come down and die in their place. For some people, the Jews standing in front of Jesus and plenty of people today, seeing him in all of his glory do that is not enough to humble them. And let me ask you a question. Let me ask myself a question. Is it enough for you and for me? Whatever God calls us to walk through, whatever things are hard that Jesus asks us to go through, and there will be hard things, hard, difficult, part of running the race. It's a marathon. Your knee will give out. Your shoulder will start hurting. You'll have blisters all over your feet. Hard things. Whenever God asks us to walk through hard things or undergo hard sayings and hard teachings, like, Lord, just grades against my soul, all we have to do is look at what Jesus did and say, but it's nothing, nothing compared to what my Savior did. And he never once said, how dare these Christians sin so much? I can't believe, you know, I die for like a thousand sins per person, but we're in the billions. All of that means more wrath. He never once complained lovingly desiring to glorify his Father in heaven and serve us. He goes through all of this. So beloved, what do we have to complain about? Nothing, nothing. Our greatest debt's been paid. <laughs> We're children of God now. And after all of the difficulty in this life, guess what happens? Glory, <laughs> perfection, and it'll last forever. What's that compared to 70 years? Let's pray.